0: Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to continue talking about one of the big themes that have come up through these readings over and over again, and that is globalization. And just to sum this up, over the 18th and 19th centuries, people and goods start to move over increasingly large distances. First, this is just the opening up of regional and then national markets, which means that people can trade particular goods over longer distances more regularly. But then starting in the 18th and then really kicking up speed in the 19th centuries, because of new political arrangements and new modes of transport, a lot of them fueled by coal, you get the creation of intense global commodities trades, and intense forms of immigration. Today, though, I don't want to talk about the economics of this. I want to talk about the culture and what this new world of global movements in people and goods does, and I think that it makes us all strangers in a little bit of a way. And I don't mean that entirely in a bad way. And to just get the kind of stakes of what this is all about, I want to uh, bring up something that is probably incredibly normal to you, ordering something off of Amazon. Now, when I want to get a book... Or if I'm too lazy to go to the store and I want to order some chocolate, I can go onto my computer, go to Amazon.com, click a couple buttons, and then in a day to seven days to two weeks, depending on where the package is coming from, I can expect something to come to my house. Now this, if you think about it, requires an intense amount of trust because in every single step of the process. I am dealing with people not only who I don't know personally, but who I can never even imagine knowing. And this goes beyond just the normal, uh, you know, sophomoric hand-wringing over how things are made. I mean, yeah, the book and the chocolate itself is made in a place that I will never go to. But also, it has to do with the stuff that I'm buying. I will buy stuff off of Amazon because I trust that in Amazon, things are going to get to me and I trust that the things that I get are the things that I pay for. On the other end of the coin, Amazon also trusts me. Amazon trusts that if it spends all of the time and organizational effort to get me my latest book or my latest box of chocolates, it will be repaid. I pay for it on credit card, which is just some sort of massive, you know, guess. It's just this one company saying that I'm relatively trustworthy enough to give a book to on credit, and another company believes them, and then every the end of the other month, I I, I press a button on my bank, and then each company gets paid. It's this massive interconnection between entities that are trusting one another, and they're not trusting one another just because they've developed good, fancy feelings about one another. I don't trust Amazon because I think that Amazon is good. I trust Amazon, and Amazon trusts me because we use these technologies of trust, and I want to explain how those come about. So as I'm talking about this, I want just to point out how in almost every example I'm going to give, the mechanisms that build up trust between people and companies and trust in objects are embodied, they're material, they're real things. Um, And I'm pointing this out because yesterday I told you that I'm trying to rethink some big ideas about how I view the world. And the essence of that is that when we look at things that we usually call cultural I think that we really are talking about interactions between people and things, that they're always embodied. Uh, we'll get into the details of that much later when I have kicked the tires of this idea. But I just want to point out, follow the objects. So uh, what we're going to do today is I'm first going to give like a really quick uh, caricature of traditional economies, um, and then I'm going to talk about some of the mechanisms that people and organizations use to generate trust in new global economies. Then I'm going to give some broader views of how this changes over time and uh, give a couple of implications for how this affects the world today. So let's just sketch out the traditional economy. And I know that this traditional economy never really Ever existed, but it's an 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 ideal type, type, which means these fancy people, I know it doesn't exist, but it's still important. So, uh, in traditional economies, you have a much smaller market. People buy and sell and consume things mostly from people with whom they have long histories. Imagine a French village. Their most economic transactions are probably between people who know each other. The fancy lord will get shoes from the shoemaker they've known since they were seven. The uh, brewer will get wheat from the farmer whose grandfather hung out with the brewer's grandfather. Uh, People trust each other because they are part of the same community, because they know them. Now, this is good insofar as we like peasant communities, but it also means that strangers come in, when they do, with a lot of distrust. If you're, say, somebody from Paris, then you need to be accompanied with a lot of cultural baggage that shows that you're the person who you say you are. Letters from the king, fancy clothes, gold, jewels, a big procession, um, you know, uh, endorsements from leading people. Or if you're lower status, then you are kind of sunk. You're a very low trust person. And these lower status people are incredibly important for the economy. You have traveling hawkers who go from city to city selling odds and ends and knives and rags and stuff. Now, during the 18th century, markets begin to expand away from these village-based things and start to encompass larger areas, increasingly larger, first national and then global, And it's this story that i'd like to explain because as the market expands then increasingly people are dealing with people who they don't actually know and another important part of this of course is urbanization that more and more and more people live in the city in the city you can never deal only with people who you know In 18th century London, nobody's grandparents were hanging out together. There's none of this kind of communal trust buildup, and so people need to get new ways of trusting one another. This, of course, kicks into high gear in the 19th century with the usual suspects of railroads and telegraphs and steamships, which increase markets even further. So let's talk about problems and responses one problem is food purity now in the 18th century people in london were always complaining about the purity of their food they worried that milkmaids would water down their milk and then put chalk and alum in it to make it white because when you water down milk it turns blue people worried about brewers uh mixing in weird stuff into their beer or people who served beer publicans watering it down this had been a problem for as long as people were living in cities and dealing with each other with uh, uh, without the bounds of traditional trust. Now, the solution was government control and inspection. In the 18th century, you got a lot of inspection of places of production because of the excise tax, which remember meant that everything, uh, a lot of consumer goods were taxed at the point of production, which required government officials to go to like uh, candle makers and brewers and actually look at how things were made. But in the 19th century, it became a bigger problem. And you got government agencies who were devoted to inspecting and then publishing data about food purity. Now, there's another side to this as well, because alongside government control and inspection, you also got companies themselves advertising their goods as especially pure. So with the case of beer, one of the reasons why you get the rise of bottled beer in the middle of the 19th century is that it's a marketing ploy by the brewers to tell the people who are buying the beer that their beer is coming directly from the brewers. There's no blocks in the exchange between brewer and drinker that can lead to adulterations. This, of course, arises alongside branding. This is one of the original stories of the IPA, of how it grew beyond something that was just drink in India to something that was drank all across Britain. You got two uh, uh, competing breweries whose names I'm forgetting, who branded their bottled IPAs and sold them all around the country. Of course, this isn't just about a fun story of beer, but this is also a story of people Forcing trust through advertisement in objects that shouldn't be trusted. Imagine uh, those posters for Carter's little liver pills that you'll see all over America if you're driving around like 50 years ago. There's a huge patent medicine business and the entire point of this business is that it uses advertising to drill up trust in objects that shouldn't be trusted Uh, some of them like carter's little liver pills are just useless but other patent medicines in the 19th century were absolutely poisonous they contained heroin or cocaine or mercury and they would make you really really sick but they were accompanied by aggressive advertising campaigns to make their users trust in them another problem is in trusting the people around you and the solution to this i think is the rise of social clubs we've touched upon this throughout all of these episodes because it's something that i study in depth but let's just lay out the problem and solution in a kind of quick manner so There's a bunch of different problems that come with interacting only with strangers. And let's talk about the economic problem and the social problem. So the economic problem is, is in the 18th century especially, merchants dealt with a lot of strangers on credit and they needed a way of figuring out who was trustworthy and who wasn't trustworthy. This was especially problematic because when you had these extended networks of credit, if one person failed, then a whole network failed as well. And then there's the social problem, the personal problem. Imagine if you were a young man from, say, uh, Glasgow, who moved over to London to make his fortune. Well, you might be doing good in your business, but who are you going to hang out with? You can't trust people. You can't just go to the inn and drink with the people there because they aren't your friends. They might cheat you. They might get you drunk and then steal stuff from you, which happens all the time when you look through all of these law reports that uh, 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 are wonderfully preserved on web it's like the old bailey. So, the solution to both of these problems is the same the creation of social clubs. Now, how this helps trust is that the entrance into a social club serves as a kind of endorsement of the character of the people who belong to it. You can socialize with people of the social, same social club as you even if you don't know them personally, because they too have gone through the same sort of rigorous or semi-rigorous vetting process that you have, or they're at least united in the same kinds of beliefs and desires that you have. And when social clubs become bigger and more national, membership in a social club becomes a kind of commensurable coin of social respectability. A member of the Freemasons from India is the same as a member of the Freemasons from London they can understand one another they both know that they are in some way united that in some way they can trust one another now there's another problem of this dispersed social networks and that's that let's imagine our 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 friend from glasgow who moves down to london well he's lonely and misses his friends and family back home. There's another form of solution to this problem, and that is the post, the exchange of letters. In Britain in the 18th century, in America in the 19th century, you get a massive explosion in the postal system. You get letters flowing back and forth between people in incredibly higher rates than ever before and in part this is because people have become widely distributed and people start to have to do a lot of their effective labor a lot of their social and 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 emotional lives through the medium of letters think of the love letter we think of it right now as something you know quaint something that is the essence of what love is something deeply personal But the love letter arose because you had people who were conducting courtship activities but who were geographically blocked from actually talking to each other for prolonged periods of time. Now, of course, this is nothing new. People went to war. People, you know, went away to to do their merchant trading. But what was new was that this kind of geographic location happened more and more and more to increasingly large numbers of people, and so you get the love letter, which also marks out a space of interaction that is deeply personal, that's entirely different than face-to-face contact. The love letter is written at leisure, The love letter is read in private. The love letter, in some ways, is a form of privacy that one could not get in the 18th and 19th centuries otherwise. It is just you and your beloved's voice, their handwriting, their physical form in the letter right there with you. Another way that uh, you have a problem with these global networks of people is in how you have to find out about the world. As networks of global commerce increase, so too do people's livelihood depend on processes that they can never see. The Lancashire cotton spinners had to rely on American slaveholders to continually produce cotton in the American South. How are they going to figure out about that? Well, alongside these developments uh, that I've discussed previously, you also have the creation of international news organizations. Now, one of the big ways we can see this is after the 1870s, when, with the expansion of telegraph networks, you get an increasingly interconnected system of news offices. These still survive today. Reuters and the Associated Press and the Argus uh, Association of Newspapers in Australia are all of these combinations of wire services that started out sharing information along the telegraph wires. And this not only gave information to people, it not only solved the problem of distance, but it created a new kind of world. Those places that were connected by telegraph were closer, metaphorically, than places that were not connected. A Londoner could get a lot more news about Australia through the wire than he could get news about southern Italy, because there were fewer telegraph connections. And of course, there's the railroad and the telegraph, uh, which we've dealt with previously. These collapse space and time. They make places closer to one another. What happens to these solutions of the problem of distance over time? Well, as the problem grows more and more, these solutions become increasingly abstract, professional, and run by experts. So, let's look at the example of social clubs to show how this process works. In the 18th centuries, most social clubs were done face-to-face. You went to a Latin learning club and hung out with other Latin learners. Well, in the 19th century, most associations have virtual memberships. You join Latin club and you get a professionally produced Latin club magazine written by professional writers who are trying to to do particular things. This also expands the realm of things that civil society can act directly upon. It helps people create mechanisms for directly affecting society itself. Not only do you have local Latin clubs, but you can get associations like anti-slavery societies, uh, anti-corn law societies, which are trying to mobilize lots of groups of people to change the world, and change it, they do. Also, these societies don't just mobilize people's hearts and minds, they also create new kinds of information and thus new reflections of what society is. Something like the anti-slavery society doesn't do its work just by getting people aggrieved about slavery. It does its work by creating knowledge about slavery and disseminating it. It does its work by publishing slave narratives so that people can read them and change their minds about what slavery means. It does it by producing statistics about the number of slaves who die in the Atlantic Passage and thus changing how people who read that think about what slavery is. These new, larger, more professionalized ways of understanding the world create new kinds of abstract knowledge that let people understand the world in a different way. On the other hand, This distance also creates a realm of intensely private activity. You read these newspapers and magazines, sometimes in the pleasure of your own home, sometimes alone. You get a letter from a distant, intimate friend, and you read it alone. It is addressed only to you. The words were written only for you, and you can read them whenever you want. You are an individual who feels and reads and thinks these things and are dealing with organizations that are approaching you as an individual. And it's really important to note that even though all of these things do the collapse of space and time that historians love to talk about, this collapse is incredibly uneven. Some places are more global than others. London is the center of the global world. It's where all the telegraph lines go. It's where all the traders go and get make their goods. It's where all the stocks get traded. And all of the places that London connects to are in their own ways respectively global. Imagine, if you will, the telegraph lines that snake out uh, from, from London all over to the white settler colonies and to India and to all the other places where, where Britain does its financial dealings, but the places that are not connected are less global. There's a global hinterland, the beginning of the third world, that is not connected to these global flows of information. This is especially important if you think about where things are being made. Let's think about cotton plantations in America and India. In these places, which are essential to the global economy, you do not get the same kind of news that you get from places like australia in these places you can imagine the telegraphs being sent back to london are not about how people are slaving away in the cotton fields they're not about democratic struggles they're not about art and literature instead they're about the price of cotton the cotton crop how much cotton there's going to be this year whether there's any new cotton This creates informational asymmetry about what the world is. It turns the third world that produces stuff for the manufacturing of the first world emotionally invisible. Similarly, some people are more global than others as well. Men are allowed in public. Men are allowed to join these societies and associations and to write letters and to go get drunk and to travel the world and to explore. Women increasingly are made only to feel safe in the home and in work. When they participate in the public sphere, it is through these virtual mechanisms of writing articles or of going out and doing particular forms of charity work that are marked out for female involvement. Women are less global than men. And let's also say something about the family. Because even though the modern world champions family values, with this greatly dispersed global world, the family becomes increasingly less important. The family is small and weak. It's not only nuclear, not only, you know, just uh, uh, parents and children, it's also highly dispersed. The father goes off to work and perhaps even goes over to the colonies, the children when they grow up will also leave as well. You get families strung out all over the places where British people move, and this makes the family increasingly uh, 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 shaky. It makes the emotional core of domestic life increasingly soft and crumbling. Thanks very much for listening to me today on Making of a Historian. I have to thank, as always, Jonathan Lear for the intro music. You can find his Bandcamp if you search for his name. Also, thanks to Duncan Barton, who made the image for uh, the podcast. Uh, If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It's super helpful. Uh, Give us a shout-out on your social media accounts, and send me an email, perhaps. Uh, Thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.